Good morning, Kessid. Hi. If we have not met yet, my name is Lindsay. I've been floating around the perimeters of Kessid for a little while, um, just kind of observing, feeling it out. And um, Danny had actually asked me to share with you that I um, recently made a decision. Um, you guys are just too charming, and I've decided I can't leave. So um, I'm deciding that Kessid is my home for now. Um, yeah. I'm excited too. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share that I'm uh, part of our teaching team and just a committed member of the family and I'm looking forward to um, studying God's word with you this morning. I do want to give um, a quick caveat before we get started. Our text for today is intense. It's intense. It rocked me as I was studying it over the last couple of months. It's um, been really convicting on a number of levels, and so fair warning, um, it might cut you to the quick. Um, I hope that it also encourages you, but whatever it is, we can trust the Lord. Um, he's the one who has come to speak to us this morning, and as he convicts, he also comforts, and any discipline that he brings is for our healing. So that's my pitch. Um, I'm looking forward to processing this text with you today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give you praise for revealing yourself to us in your word. Thank you for that gift. And we just invite you to enter this space with us today. Spirit, would you come and would you do what only you can do? Would you take this one word this one text written thousands of years ago, would you divide it up, multiply it, distribute it to each of us in a unique way, in the way that only you can, Lord? We love you, we trust you, in your name, Jesus, amen. Laziness is demonic. The date was August 22nd, 2016, and 17 of us college juniors sat in our first day of systematic theology class with wide eyes and sweaty palms as Dr. Clark leaned on his podium and stared down at us all. Now, I had never met Dr. Clark before, but I had seen him in the hallways, and the man showed up to teach in crew neck sweatshirts half the time, and he always seemed a little scattered, a little absent-minded, super kind. And so I was totally unprepared for him to kick off class with not so much as an introduction, just a piercing glaze, gaze, and those words, laziness is demonic. I can see why he did it. The looks on your faces are very satisfying right now. And what better way to instill the fear of God in a bunch of college kids than to imply that demons might be influencing their academic choices? Now, as I got to know Dr. Clark, I discovered he really is very kind. He became one of the most trajectory-altering influences of my entire life. And I also discovered that he was totally right. Laziness is demonic. Now, Dr. Clark said this while the course syllabus was being handed out to all of us, so I think most of us initially took this statement to be something of a threat, something like, if you don't work hard on your papers, you're playing right into the enemy's hands. 
In a way, this is exactly what he was saying. But not because he was trying to inspire us to be perfectionistic students. Dr. Clark was trying to instill in us from our very first moments in his class the real heartfelt belief that our lives meant something, that what we did with our lives mattered. You know, you can't even fathom what God wants to do with your life. You, your life. If you are in this room, it applies to you. And I don't mean that as some cute, pump you up kind of sentiment. I mean it as a biblical fact that whatever is in your head for your life right now is too small. The Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians said, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. In Ephesians 3 he says, God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or even think to ask. So if you've thought it or you've asked for it, whatever God has in store for you is far greater because he does the things we can't even think to ask for, but we can miss it. And we will miss it by our own passivity. We have an enemy who knows there is no better way to keep you from making the most of your life and accessing all that God has for you than by helping you get comfortable. This is what my professor was getting at. For most of us, the greatest threat to our spiritual lives is not moral failure, it's spiritual drowsiness. Because most of us wanna do the right thing. You know, most of us, we're not gonna go out and murder someone tomorrow or steal from someone, most of us. But we might just gradually drift off to sleep. Spiritual slumber is an image I'm using today to talk about apathy. That's what our current series is about. And last week, Danny talked about how we all have apathy in different areas of our lives, that it, it comes out for us differently, it manifests differently, and it's so true. And I say that now. I, I say that now. But in preparing for this sermon, I foolishly, pridefully, sat down to pray and said something like, God, how am I supposed to teach on a sin I'm not dealing with? <sighs> Guys. <laughs> You know the Holy Spirit has been dealing with me. Um, he has not ceased to point out to me, as I've prepped for this, apathy in my own life on multiple fronts that I didn't know was there. Um, because for me, apathy shows up in the last place I would think to look for it. I often compare myself to Hermione Granger. Now, if you're familiar with the Harry Potter stories, you no longer require an explanation. But if you're not, allow me to enlighten you. Hermione is the character who always follows the rules down to an annoyingly detailed degree. She has her papers and assignments done way ahead of time. She reads massive nonfiction books in her free time. She is part of student clubs and extracurricular activities, and she's always on the go. That's me. It's me. So I'm like, Lord, how could I possibly be apathetic? Look at everything I accomplished today. And he's like, mm-hmm, and your busyness is exactly how you've been avoiding dealing with the things that we've needed to deal with for a long time. <sighs> Cut to the quick. Um, you see, apathy 
is not just cured by more passion and more diligence. That's why I thought with my busy schedule, I was immune to apathy. If that were the case, we could end today's message right here. Stop being spiritually lazy and go be more diligent. Wouldn't that be so easy and also so depressing? Just work harder, guys. No, you see, apathy is not the opposite of diligence. Apathy is the opposite of love. Eli Wiesel was a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust and a prolific author and activist. At age 15, he and his family were imprisoned at Auschwitz, the Nazi concentration camp made famous because 90% of its prisoners were killed upon arrival. Neither of his parents survived, but Eli somehow managed to, and he went on to write about his experiences after he was freed years later. In 1986, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for human rights activism. In his acceptance speech, he said these words that haunt me. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. This man, who knew incredible evil, more evil than most of us will ever have to face, somehow saw apathy as a greater offense than hatred. Why? Well, love and hate are actually two sides of the same coin. If you love someone, you also by default hate certain things. I love my dog, so I'm hypervigilant about his health and safety and would hate if anything bad happened to him. My mom loves me, so she hates when boys break my heart. I love my sister, so I hate it if she gets mistreated at work. But the truly loveless person sees evil, injustice, and pain, and is inactive. The truly loveless person is detached and disengaged. That's why whether I binge watch Netflix on a Saturday or spend the day passionately pursuing my hobbies, I could have apathy in my heart. This is the definition I want to give you today. Apathy is inner resistance to God's love and the demands of God's love. I'll say it again. Apathy is inner resistance to God's love and the demands of God's love. I believe apathy is the greatest threat to the American church today because the most sobering thing about apathy is you will end up there if you don't consciously try not to. There is an irresistible cultural current that, unless you fight it, will lead you to a place of apathy. It is the pull of the world in which we live. So unless you're consciously swimming upstream, we will get dragged in this direction. So how do we fight apathy? Well, there are a lot of spokes to that wheel, but today we're going to tackle one angle of apathy by walking through some of Paul's words to the Ephesians. I, I like Ephesians for us. I mean... Ephesians, for anyone, amazing book. If you haven't read it, go read it. But Ephesus and America have some significant things in common. Um, the Ephesian church of Paul's day was made up of people from totally different ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds, and they experienced a lot of division. And I know that in America, we don't know much about division, but I mean, we might learn something. Um, Ephesus was also a major producer of different goods, and so they had kind of a thriving economy and relatively comfortable lives. And yet, Paul writes this letter about how the Ephesians are to live differently, 
as followers of Jesus, that there's this clear path to Christian maturity that they need to be following. And in chapter five, he deals with the way to fight spiritual slumber. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 5, 1 to 21. Ephesians 5, 1 to 21. If you don't, the verses will be on the screen. We'll start with just the first two verses. This is verse one and two. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now, I love these verses because I'm one of those people who actually really likes grammar. And in this run-on sentence, we get three different versions of the word love, which is great because since apathy is the opposite of love, we need to talk about love and what it is. So here we have love, the adjective. We are beloved children. Beloved describes who we are. We have love, the noun. It's the way we are to walk, almost as if love is this path that our feet are meant to trace. And we have love, the verb. Notice that it's past tense. It's an action already accomplished for us by Jesus already accomplished for us by Jesus when he laid down his life to reconcile us to God. Now, if you don't care about grammar, there's something here for you too. I want you to notice that in the Bible, identity always precedes action. Paul's reminding us, hey, before we go anywhere else, I need you to know you are first and foremost beloved children. This is our identity. This is really important because we live in a day and age where personal identity is especially important and totally up for grabs. Our culture offers us a lot of sources for identity that are not the love of God. Now, if you have chosen allegiance to Jesus, your identity is the fact that you are loved by God. There is nothing else that defines you more than that. And we know that who we are always leads to a way of living in the world, right? Like part of my identity is I am an eater of good food. And so I take the action step of never going to Taco Bell ever. Um, we make decisions that flow from our identities. My choices reveal something about who I am and hopefully they come out of who I am. So if beloved children of God is our identity, then there's an action that follows. That's that we are meant to imitate God and walk in love. Those two things, imitation of God and walking in love are inextricably related because love is the great motivator of God's own life. Let me prove it to you. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, we've all heard it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We've heard it a million times, but look at God's motivation. Because God loved, he gave his son. God loved, so he did something. Love orders God's priorities. It drives his activity. As dearly loved children called to imitate God, love has to be the driving force of our lives. You wanna fight the current pulling you toward apathy? You have to cultivate apathy's opposite, which is holy love. 
I'm calling it holy love right now because our culture has a lot to say about love, doesn't it? And it's kind of this nebulous, whatever makes you happy kind of word. God's love has a specific definition to it. We already saw it, actually. Our love is meant to imitate the love of Christ who gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. Jesus' love is bent outward in service of you as worship to the Father. It's love that would choose my own death for the good of another and the worship of the Father. That's what our love should look like. The thing is, the same current that wants to lull you to sleep is going to try to redefine love for you. The enemy wants to seduce you into a state of spiritual slumber that's actually the opposite of love. And what's the best way to do that? Well, by totally redefining love. That's where Paul is heading next. Look with me at Ephesians 5, 3 to 13. These are heavy verses, so hang in there with me. Starting verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord." Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Now notice that Paul immediately moves from talking about love, which feels really good, to putting restraints on basically all the things that our culture is adamantly opposed to putting restraints on. Those would be sexuality and what I do with my body, how I spend my money, what I talk about, and what I find humorous. That's because the cultural definition of love today is really not significantly different from the cultural definition of love in Paul's day. The cultural definition of love is basically the same as tolerance. Live and let live. Love is love. You do you. If I love you, I'll let you do what makes you happy. That's the opposite of what Paul is saying. What God's word says is living as those who have been reborn by God's love means we have a ruler over our lives. And it's not us. It's King Jesus. Paul says, don't be deceived. False teachers and cultural influencers are going to come around who don't see Jesus as king. They'll say, you are the ruler of your own life. Paul says, their words are empty. They promise satisfaction, but it doesn't last. You know, it's no wonder to me that in the course of telling us to walk in love, Paul goes straight for this hot topic that is our sexuality. 
If there's one thing I've seen consistently draw people away from continuing in obedience to Jesus, it's sexual temptation and sin. What does this have to do with apathy? Well, everything. Paul's addressing sexual sin and greed right off the bat because they are sins directly born of our desires, our longings, our appetites. Humans are first and foremost lovers. We were made to love and be loved. So if we allow ourselves to become apathetic, we will still love other things. They'll just be bad for us and other people. And on the other hand, if we continue to chase loves that God has said are harmful for us, we will wind up cold and numb to the love of God. Now don't get me wrong. What I'm not saying is that our longings, our desires, our bodies are in any way inherently wrong or shameful. Some of us come from backgrounds where those things have been weaponized. That's not what I'm saying. Paul is bringing this up in a really adamant way because it's human nature. We often settle for what is immediate and available instead of what is infinite and exceptional. And I wanna challenge you today. If you are serving a God whose authority stops short of defining who you are, how you live, and what you do, you are not serving the Jesus we encounter in scripture. You are serving another God entirely. And really that God is yourself because the buck stops with you. You get to define your life and your love, your God. That's not who we wanna be. Paul says, you're children of light. Don't participate in the darkness anymore. And he even goes a step further. He, you know, he talks, has this language about what we say and coarse jesting and what is all that about. I, I think what he means is it's not just this active participation in things that are dark. It's also our passive partnership with them by what we talk about and what we laugh about. You know, nothing is more revealing about what's in someone's heart than what they laugh at. Passive partakers have ceased to be lights in the darkness. However, the answer is not to stay in the darkness. The answer is not to cover up sin and pretend like it's not there. We've seen where this has gone horribly wrong. You know, people in isolation with their sin often harm themselves. They despair. Or, uh, you know, something that's making headlines right now, there's a major Christian denomination that's currently under fire for years of covering up sexual abuse by their own pastors and leaders. It's horrible. Hiding our sin never produces holiness or healing. Paul uses this imagery of light and darkness. It's like when you go to see a movie and they flip on the lights at the end after the credits roll and suddenly you notice that you are absolutely surrounded by popcorn and candy wrappers and there's like a gummy bear in the folds of your t-shirt and soda on the floor and getting to the door is like walking through a landmine, you know. Um, you didn't notice it in the darkness. But that doesn't mean it wasn't there and just as gross. Paul says, flip on the lights, clean it up. How do you flip on the lights as a person? How do we get illuminated? The way to become a light in the kingdom of God is confession, not perfection. Are you struggling with any of these sins? Tell a brother or sister, shine the spotlight on your darkness. 
Confession isn't admitting that you were defeated by sin. Confession is a victory cry over your sin. Confession is saying, God's grace is greater than my sin. There is healing available for me. Paul's saying, yes, stop sinning. But also, God's grace is sufficient for you. God can work with brokenness. Don't stay in the darkness beating yourself up. You are a child, a beloved child of light, so walk in it. When you shine the light on your sin, you allow God to search you. When you shine the light on your sin, you starve the appetites that lead you away from God's love and into spiritual slumber, and you cultivate the appetites that lead to holy love. So where are we so far? Apathy is resistance to God's love and the demands of God's love. So A, stop resisting the demands of his love, AKA the things he's called us to be obedient to, which are difficult, and B, receive his love. Hiddenness, hiding in the darkness, closes us off from God's presence, God's love, God's grace. Confession is the way you get back into God's presence and back into the fight. You can almost hear the urgency in Paul's voice in these verses. Walk in the light. Confess your sins to one another. Let the light in. Let the light of Christ shine on you. Look at verse 14. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul's saying, wake up. Wake up, because if you fall asleep spiritually, you're dead even while you're alive. You're missing out on the grand purpose God intends for you. Life and death are interesting images in the way of Jesus. You know, we follow Jesus because he promises us this eternal life after death and abundant life that starts right now as we know him and are loved by him. But by choosing Jesus' life, we have to die to ourselves. We have to give up what might have looked before to us like really living, like this is living it up, this is what makes me feel alive. We have to give that up and embrace the life that is really life. You might have noticed, if you like grammar, that verse 14 is in quotation marks. Usually, when you see quotes like that in the New Testament, it's because the author is quoting the Old Testament but here, Paul is actually quoting a first century baptismal hymn. This is a lyric to a song that the first Christians sang over each other when they were baptized, when they made this public profession that they were choosing allegiance to Jesus. Paul seems to be saying that this is a song we have to continue to sing over one another, the call to awake. When I think about my own life, the moments I have woken up to the reality of Jesus have always come at the beckoning of another believer. When I was three years old, my father called me to wake up. My earliest memories are of him and my mom reading to me. I remember the night my dad read to me about Jesus calling Simon and Andrew to be fishers of men, disciples under his authority, and I knew I wanted in. Best decision I ever made. When I was 16 and battling an eating disorder, it was my mom's patient call to me to wake up, to wake up to Jesus' definition of my own value, 
I remember countless days she ministered to me by fixing me meals, literal physical food that would nourish my body that was wasting away at the time, all while taking me straight to God's word, the spiritual food I needed just as much and tirelessly walking me through these promises of God that my worth and my value were inherent, that it was because I was made by the creator of the universe and didn't come from my own physical appearance. When I was 18, my high school small group leader, Keisha, called me to wake up. She had this selfless way of living in total humility and generosity and transparency that I found captivating. She really loved people. For a couple years, we met early on Wednesday mornings for coffee, and she called me out of my self-absorption into real love for people. It changed my life. In college, Dr. Clark and Dr. Norris two of my professors, called me to wake up to the reality that my life had purpose, that I needed to make the most of my time, that I needed to put all the wood I have on the fire. Who has called you to wake up? Who are you calling to wake up? Let's keep moving. Look with me at our last verses for today, verses 15 to 21. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Part of waking up spiritually and staying awake is recognizing that we actually have a great deal of freedom we have to decide what to do with. I mean, as heavy as those last verses may have felt, there are relatively few must-do things in the Christian life. You know, honor God with your body and your life. Any religion would ask the same. But then when it comes to everything else in life, your occupation, your hobbies, your day-to-day existence, Christianity is relatively open-ended. Paul says, make the most of your time. The days are evil, your time is at your discretion, make the most of it. It's as if Paul is saying every moment counts. The world we live in is set against the gospel of Jesus. So he says, walk in wisdom. Now, wisdom usually sounds to us like this hyper-theoretical kind of vague intellectualism. Like, we use it almost synonymously with the word smart. But in the Bible, wisdom always has to do with practical know-how. With exercising our knowledge of God's character and design to make decisions. Paul seems to be saying that our moment-to-moment decisions add up. They become a way that we walk. And the way that we walk leads us somewhere over time. He says, make decisions that line up with the will of God. Where are you leading your life? Make sure you're being wise, putting into practice the things of God, letting them come to bear on the way you live. How do we do that? Paul's instruction is very simple. He says, don't get drunk with wine. It's so simple, but it feels so random right here, except it's actually brilliant. I spend a lot of time 
sitting with this line because I didn't get it. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. We know that when we give our lives to Jesus, we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus comes to dwell within us. That's different from being filled with the Spirit. The Spirit resides in you if you follow Jesus, but your decisions in life can either fan the flame of his voice or dull it. See where this is going? Wise decisions, decisions made in submission to the will of God help you tune into the Spirit of God. And at the same time, tuning into the Spirit of God helps you make wise decisions. So, Paul says, don't get drunk. I think that what he means at face value is don't get drunk. Paul is not saying don't drink alcohol, okay? He's not saying that. He's saying exactly what he's saying. He's saying don't get drunk. He's saying you are always going to be under the influence of something. So let it be the spirit. If you drink alcohol, don't drink so much that your judgment and mind are so dead into everything else that you couldn't hear the voice of God if you wanted to. Here's the thing. There are lots of ways we intoxicate ourselves that aren't just wine. As I was studying this text, the Lord really convicted me that for me it's been allowing too many voices into my life. Especially voices of people that aren't submitted to Jesus or um, perhaps aren't, aren't following him. And I really felt while I was working on this, like the Holy Spirit was saying, those relationships are intoxicating you, Lindsay. I'm not saying this will be the same for everyone, but I am suggesting that we all ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts for those things that might be intoxicating us and impairing our judgment. It might be alcohol or another substance. It could be people-pleasing. Social media accolades or mindless scrolling. Dead-end dating relationships. Shopping. Food might be your drug of choice. Cut it off. And I know, it can be hard. If we've tried to cut something off and we keep going back to it, it took me years to stop going back to disordered eating. I don't know an easy answer to this except that we will fall and we have to keep getting back up and we can't do it alone. Paul's final encouragement for us in fighting spiritual slumber is just that you cannot do it alone. He paints this picture of a community of people filled with the spirit and walking together in pursuit of God's love. It's such a beautiful reality, so perfect, so close to what God always intended for humanity that music is coming out of these people. He says, sing to one another. The melody of our world is like a siren song. Sirens are these creatures from Greek mythology that they would sing these enchanting songs that were irresistible to sailors out at sea. And... Um, Sailors would fall asleep in their boats or become so crazed with enticement that they would run their ships into the rocks and they would die. It's a melody that kills. Paul is saying, as disciples of Jesus, take part in the family of Jesus and counter the siren song of culture with your own melody. Sing to each other the songs of the Spirit, and as you do so, you will bring joy to your Father with your music and spur one another on to live lives of radical love. As we wrap up, 
I want to just acknowledge that this can start to feel like a lot. That's why I think the imagery, the action words Paul uses in Ephesians 5 are critical. First, he says, to fight spiritual slumber and live as a follower of Jesus, you have to imitate God. Now, imitation of anything comes by observing and practicing, right? So a key to staying awake spiritually is to read God's word daily. Super practical and easy to say, perhaps not as easy to do. It's not always going to feel great. You're not always going to get something out of it. But if you try to observe God without the Bible, you'll end up right where we started our conversation today, imitating a God made by you or someone else. This imitation is a day in and day out practice. I believe there is a word for some of you here today. You've been doing this day in and day out practice for a long time. Maybe waiting for God to do something or undo something in your life. And you're starting to exhibit some of the symptoms of apathy. You might feel a little foggy, a little emotionally disconnected. Maybe you're losing motivation to pursue God or to keep serving others. And you're worried, am I becoming apathetic? And some of you, I think, you're not spiritually sleeping, you're tired. You've been awake a long time now. Jesus' word to you is entirely different. Jesus' word to you is not wake up. It's come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And finally, what is the most surefire way to stay awake physically? You got to get up and walk around. It's the same spiritually. Did you see how many times Paul told us to walk? There's three times explicitly he says walk. Walk in love, walk in the light, walk in wisdom. And you do all that by being filled with the spirit. I love the walking imagery because, first of all, barring some kind of injury, we all know how to walk. Except for maybe babies and children. And if there are newer believers in the room and you're still figuring out what it looks like to walk as a follower of Jesus, that's okay. No father despises a child learning to walk. God's not mad at us for learning. But no child wants to be a baby forever either. So that means we have to just start walking it out. We have to get moving. A door opens up in front of you, seek the spirit, walk through it, see where it goes. And keep on walking when the world around us tries to drag us the other direction. When we walk, we're going to trip and fall sometimes. And that's why it's so important to walk as a member of a spirit-filled community. Because if everyone's just sleepwalking together, it looks like we're all awake. We need spirit-filled friends. Friends who are awake to the love of God. Walk as a member of that community in the spirit. You will wake up to the light and love of God. 
you will make the most of your life to the rhythm of a song that's both countercultural to the spirit of our age and a pleasing offering to the Lord. And you'll get to walk right into the amazing, unthinkable things God has in store for you. I want to invite the band to come back out. And as they get settled, let's pray together. And let this be a time as we pray where you let the light of Christ shine on you and search you. Like the first light of day coming through your window in the morning. It's time to wake up. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you search us? Would you shine the the spotlight of your truth into the dark corners within us? The nooks and crannies we didn't know were there. The places we've been intentionally hiding. Would you raise the dead in us, Holy Spirit? And Spirit, as you convict, would you also bring comfort? Would you discipline us and also assure us who we are to you? That we are dearly loved children. Teach us to walk, Father. Wake us up. Wake up your church. Wake us up to the light and love of Jesus Christ and make us lights in the dark around us. We trust you to do that work that only you can do, Father. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen. It's time for the sleeper to wake. It's time for the old winds to change. I hear the Spirit say, it's time. It's time for the dead man to rise. It's time for the great light to shine. Oh, I hear the